Today's program has been brought to you by GreatBrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit GreatBrewers.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 and the Good Beer Seal. This week we're on vacation and we spent some time earlier this month up in Cooperstown, New York at Omegang Brewery at the Belgian Comes to Cooperstown Festival. It's our fourth year there. We interviewed many great people. We talked about water and new small breweries and all the cool things happening in the world of beer. And uh, you can listen here on, on our show. Thanks for listening. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni here with the host of uh, Campground Goers and everything from the Omegang, you know, Belgian Comes to Cooperstown Festival. We're here all weekend. We're having a great time. Our, our co-hosts on this segment are two guys from Fishburg, Mass. What are your names? Mark. Mark from what? Foam? What's Foam? Fishburg Order of Alemakers. And who's the other guy? I'm Joey. Joey. So these guys, the, the typical, uh, you know, festival setup here is... Guys like this come here, put up their own tents. These guys have three tents. They've got food out that we're eating. I'm eating tomatoes. They've got beer to share. The first time I came, I went up the hill, and I bet a bunch, bunch of guys from Philadelphia, and they were pouring, like, southern-tier, like, crazy oak-aged kegs. I'm like, how'd you get a sixth of this? And they're like, they went to the homebrew shop or something. So this is the, probably, like, the greatest collection of, uh, you know, beer enthusiasts in, in the Northeast, and we're always happy to be here. So... As we walk around, we're trying to find these guys, and these guys have been here. How many years have you guys been coming here? Uh, this is my ninth. Ninth year? and Just my second. Second. So uh, so it's foam. we got Not some great brewers like... here. Get everybody. we got Phil Leinart from Omegang, Jeff O'Neill from Peekskill, and Larry Bennett from uh, Omegang. And Simon Thorpe is uh, he's here as well, but he's not going to talk. So um, let's, let's let's get the conversation going. This is pretty cool. So Jeff, you, you're from Pizza. You're also camped out here too. Oh yeah, yeah. We brought a nice uh, nice sized crew. Always always a pleasure to be up here. Place looks beautiful, and you got the right weather for the day. So we're having a nice day. All right. Well, Phil, you know we we, we talked a little earlier, and uh, but there's still this character, this festival. You know, there's nothing like it, but. We were trying to get to a serious issue today, and I think this is the right group of people to talk about it. Um, I know that Omegang has been a leader in uh, anti-fracking, but but most importantly, talking about the, quality, the importance of the quality of beer, of water, <laughs> for the for brewing. And Larry, tell us about some of the projects you've been involved in. Okay, um, I'm Larry from Omegang, and I've been working with this for about three years. Simon Thorpe, our president, gave me carte blanche about three years. It's been three months studying this, which I did. And um, so since then, I've been working with people across the state, with business groups, with environmental groups, worked with, uh, um, you, you name it, you name it, everybody. And I've even done some stuff out in the Midwest with um, Great Lake Brewers and Lucy Saunders, um, just going and talking to people, just talking to people about what's going on, been to, been to the legislator, talking to senators and legislators, talked to the governor, um, just trying to, you know, put a face on this about what's going on or what's potentially going on and what the results will be if it happens here. So how important is water for beer? That's Phil. That's Phil. <laughs> it's everything. It is. Beer is water. It's an important ingredient. Oh. Yep. 
And we, we bring in, you know, we bring in ingredients from around the world to make our beers, but all of our water comes off of this 140 acres right here where we have three wells, and we're in the Susquehanna um, River basin here, watershed, and uh, the aquifers beneath it feed us, and without that, we are just out of luck. The classic beer styles of the world are all based on um, their water. So if you look at the water of Munich, you look at the water, uh, Burton-on-Trent, um, a lot of the character that those beers have are basically from the water. So how important is the, is the water up here in Cooperstown, New York, and how does that influence the styles of beer that you make? Well, our water is relatively soft, so uh, from a brewing standpoint, that's good because we just have to add mineral salts to treat the water depending on the style of beer we're making, acidify the water. Uh, if you have very hard water, alkaline water, sometimes you have to treat it more in depth, so it's uh, it's very good water to brew with and very pure, and that's why when we heard about hydrofracking, uh, the potential of having our water contaminated with things like diesel fuel and organic solvents, it would be the end of us, basically. Jeff, you're in, in Peaksville, New York. Tell us about, uh, you know, for you, what water means. And you're... Yeah, well, We're in the Hudson Valley over there, so different different watershed, but of course it's still the first and foremost ingredient in every beer that we make. Um, our water's a little different than what they have here. It's a, it's a, it's a surface water um, collective uh, locally. More, more minerality than they have here but it suits the styles of beer that we tend to make there. Um, I grew up over here, though, um, in, in uh, central New York, and it's a really, really important issue um, when you hear some of these stories about, uh, you know, farms with ponds turning black and catching on fire. Start to worry. Larry, well, what, what are the risks of, of fracking? I mean, this is a great state, an agricultural state. You know, we make ciders, wine, you know, great shops in New York depend on the food. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, water is one of the natural resources we're blessed with here. We have a surfeit of water. We have all the water we could possibly want, unlike the South or the Southwest or California, where they're battling over water. We have what we need here, every bit of it. But by the same token, a tiny bit of nasty chemicals can contaminate an enormous amount of water. So that's that's the concern. Um, you know, in PA, they've had enormous problems. Here, we haven't had it yet. We still don't have hydraulic fracturing here, horizontal fracturing. And we've been fighting it for years, and, you know, we just want to keep the water pristine. It's as simple as that. Upstate has a great ag economy, but it's fallen in the past 20 years, and so we're part of helping bring it back. We're part of the hop initiatives to help bring it back. So we just want to see that water preserved for right. those purposes. And for the homebrewers here, I mean, the guys from Fitchburg and Massachusetts, I mean, I'm sorry, what's your name? I'm Greg. I'm the uh, secretary of foam. Um, so um, I've been a uh, foam member for uh, about a dozen years or so. And, uh, I mean, for us, water is a huge thing, too. I mean, I have a well, and I have to treat my water. I'm lucky because my water doesn't have a lot of minerals in it, and that's kind of easy to be able to add stuff to it. Um, but whether, and this is Scott, he's our uh, president as well, you know, he uses city water, and again, we know what our water is. So it's the same issue, you know, we don't want anything getting in our water. I mean, we could go out and use bottled water, which obviously as a, as a brewer, you know, you can't really do that. You can't truck in water from somewhere else. But, yeah, yeah, right. But, uh, so yeah, it's just as important. And luckily, um, I'm from Clinton, Mass., and our water is pristine as well. I, I started out using bottled water because I was a little leery when we moved to Clinton, and I, I, I did some 
test on it, and you know, there's no off flavors at all. So it's re- it just it makes it really you know easy to brew good beers if the you know water starts out and you can do anything you want to the beers without uh you know having some off flavors. So, so Jeff, what, what were you saying? You guys actually do truck and water sometimes? No, no, sorry, Oma oh, Gang. Oma Gang. Yeah, we have in the past, but more related to uh, capacity before we put in our new water system and storage and all that. Yeah, so we have three wells working here now. So four. We four. We just drilled a fourth well. That's right, man. Across the road, down by the river. So, so we have lots of water. So you have you have well water, and yeah. that's how you feed the brewery. We're self-contained, both water and wastewater. We're our, we're an island, basically. I think someone wants to say something. Yeah, I think on. On fracking, there, there are a couple of really important issues for us to that we need to resolve um, as we go forward. Because the issue is not going to go away. This is something that's going to be with us for decades. Um, and you've got to remember that the gas underneath us is an important resource for the country. Uh, it's been there for, what, 300 million years or whatever, and it's not going anywhere. The biggest issue we face is can you extract the gas safely? And the answer is no right now. Will technology develop over the years to the point that you can do it? For sure it will, it always does. So there's no, there's no urgency for us to screw up the environment just because we want to get the gas out of the ground now. It, it's not going anywhere. And I think the biggest, the second issue is that, as Larry said, farming policy changed up in upstate New York in the, in the 80s. And uh, I think one of the issues is that if farming policy was right and farms were more profitable uh, than they are up here, then farmers would be making different decisions because at the end of the day, it's their legacy as well as ours. Um, and if, you, if you're making money on your farm and things are going well, you're going to make decisions for the long term instead of we've got people up here who are fighting to hold on to their land. Some gas company comes along, writes a big check, and, and they see it as a, as a way to get themselves through things and in a different set of circumstances with better agricultural policy we wouldn't be making those decisions and I think it's really important for us to remember this there's a real human side to this issue that people farming farming is not easy up in this this part of the world and you would make very different decisions for your children and your grandchildren and their children if things were a little bit more viable on, on farm policy so I mean for me the, the issue is real simple. It's not safe to do this right now. We can't make world-class beer, any of us around this table, none of us can make world-class beer with polluted water. We know that that happens, um, and all we're advocating for at the moment is let's just not do this until we're absolutely sure that we can do it safely. We're not, we're not opposed to this, and I think it's very important that you don't set yourself up as being opposed to something like this. We just want it done safely and for the benefit of everyone. And there is a lot of money that is lobbying to get this done fast because people can see some very big profits and the energy industry in the US from oil right the way through to gas we've seen a whole load of really short term decisions taken in the interest of getting that money out of the ground and someone turning a fast buck so I think for us this is really about like the beer it's about the legacy that you leave behind um, and what you stand for and how you want that to, uh, to endure over a long long period of time and people and people think this is uh, you know an upstate issue, but it isn't really. It isn't an upstate issue at all. For example, New York City gets all this water from the reservoirs that are up here, and we're only about right here. We're about 32 miles from the edge of the watershed to the reservoirs, and the Susquehanna rolls right down here. 
And by the time it gets to Harrisburg, PA, out here it's 30 feet wide. When it gets to Harrisburg, PA, it's a mile and a half wide. So it's a huge, huge source of water that comes from up here. But to sort of tie that together, here's something to put it in perspective. So Brooklyn Brewery, in Brooklyn, obviously, where do they get their water? They get their water from New York City. Why do they get their water from New York City, which gets it from us? Because all the ground around Brooklyn and every place they could get water there was terminally polluted by all the industrial development in Brooklyn in you know, the, the earlier part of the last century. So they had to get their water from New York City, who gets it from us. So when it gets messed up up here, it all flows downstream. So I think Larry, Larry raises a really important point here. The, there are a couple of... The, the, the strange thing that kind of doesn't compute for me in this is that the New York City watershed is protected from fracking. You can't frack in the New York City watershed area. Um, and so my, my issue is, well, why is it okay? You, you, you don't want to do this for New York City, but it's okay to frack over here in other parts of the state. Uh, it just doesn't compute for me why it's a double standard, as Phil says. Where did they get that backyard. protection from? That's the question. Was that just a, legis- a legislative decision kind of thing? Like, hey, we don't want to, you know... Right, pollute the New York City water, it's, but like you're saying, it's, it's, it's sheer political throw weight. Yeah, you know, yeah. New York City has the political power to say no. We're not going to put up with this. It's right. no more complicated Syracuse than that. Also, right? right, Syracuse watershed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I, I, we're going to talk more about this uh, issue, and and, and we're going to get deeper with, uh, of course, yeah. and yeah. with yeah. Jeff O'Neill and and Phil Leinart too. Uh, take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to DD by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. So, you like good beer? Whether you're a craft beer pro or just had your first sip of an IPA, GreatBrewers.com is your number one beer resource on the internet. GreatBrewers.com bridges the gap between the world's great brewers and the consumers who enjoy their products. With so much information and misinformation out there, GreatBrewers.com focuses on education and leaves no stone unturned. Take the Great Beer Test on their website and browse through an extensive product catalog. Download their mobile beer cloud app, which includes a GPS beer finder, a beer sommelier, and descriptions for over 5,000 different brews. What are you waiting for? Back up that passion for craft beer with some solid information and education. Visit GreatBrewers.com today. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're up here in Cooperstown, New York, at Omegang's Belgian Comes to Cooperstown. We're sitting down talking about water, and we're with two great brewers. We're with Jeff O'Neill from Peekskill and Phil Leinhardt from Omegang. So we're going to let them take it away. I don't know what they want to talk about, but, you know, Phil's working with new hops. Uh, you know, Jeff's working in a new brewery. He used to work at Ithaca. So this is the, this is the place where, you know, brewers come together, enthusiasts. We're with the guys from Foam, the homebrew club from Fishburg, Massachusetts, and Larry Bennett. Uh, the marketing guy for Omegang. Gang. So, so Jeff, you know, we we're talking about some water issues. You know, tell us more about what, what what's going on in, in Peekskill because you said, what do you get? Where's the water source in Peekskill? Our water is local uh, local surface water, local groundwater um, that's collected in a local reservoir in the, in the lower Hudson Valley, um, within a few miles of where our brewery is. So, um, mostly mostly rain and and, and uh, stream stream runoff. Um, but it's nice. It's suitable to make the um, sort of hobby style ales that we uh, 
we tend to, to lean toward there um, as an American, sort of new American style uh, brewery. We're making sort of uh, bright and clean hoppy style ales as a general rule. Um, but I, today I want to hear more about what they're growing here and how they think they might be able to make um, estate-grown beers maybe here in the future. Like if you feel like that, that bigger yard up there could maybe support yeah. a batch or two. Well, right now we work with Cornell University. Uh, we have a total of maybe a half acre planted here, um, and we're doing a variety trial. We've got 15 varieties in this year. We'll probably add 10 more next year. And the whole point is we we just want to, you know, hop growing is starting to come back to New York State, and we want to assist in any way we can. Uh, one of that those ways is to do these variety trials. They're all rhizomes that were, are powdery and uh, mildew resistant um, but seeing what ag- agronomically what varieties will do well around here uh, we're funding some of Cornell's work uh, and we're funding um, the construction of a hop picker because uh, there's a, n- a number of small farms that are growing hops but all they can really do now is offer f- like wet hops you know freshly harvested to a brewer uh, and you know, we'd like to help them get to the next step where, you know, they're processing and so forth so they could really make it a, a viable business. Um, so I don't know what we're going to do with the hops. <laughs> we might probably throw some in a pile of brew. I think it'd be cool, like, you know, you have, like, you pick blueberries and you pick yeah. strawberries. Like, you pick hops for, like, homebrewers <laughs> and stuff. Um uh, but but it'd be that's a I that's a neat idea. I like I like I like Jeff's idea. Like, oh, I only you know, assumed that you were going there with that. Yeah, like, that I you mean, could make or, an estate or, or we or we could hand pick, we could pick them all and just you know all the different varieties and throw them in a brew and uh, that that'd be interesting. And I too. love that for those that don't know, this a hundred years ago, this site that we're sitting on was a yeah was a hop a working hop farm. Yeah. Jeff, when you you were in Ithaca, you worked there for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, is there like a local hop scene, local grain scene going on there? Well, you know, 10 years ago, there was a small farm that uh, I think it was one of the first um, to really have a, a viable commercial size crop up near there in Seneca, um, up at the north end of Seneca Lake. Uh, Peterson Farms, I think Rick is still active in, um, in the uh, New York hop scene. And we actually made a, uh, a beer at Ithaca Beer almost 10 years ago um, that was a... a double IPA that was made with all New York State grown hops and it was the first time I think in 60 or 70 years that there had been uh, a beer made with with New York hops and it was a a big deal at the time Um, but it's interesting because we sort of married the product to um, one of the graphics on the label said 100% New York State grown hops and Rick did a great job for the first couple of years and then we had a summer that it didn't rain and there was no crop and we didn't have that product anymore. Right, right. So we learned a lesson about uh, yeah. hitching, a, hitching yeah, your we, wagon to an ingredient. Right, we, we hope to do an all New York State hop beer next year. Um, but that's what I say, like part of like getting it to make to be a real viable business you know so brewers you know farmers can have five ten acres planted or something like that that's the next step you know that one of the barriers to entry like phil said is the processing of the uh, the equipment needed for the processing of the of the uh, cone into a usable uh shelf stable ingredient that you can use over the course of a year to make the same beer over uh, multiple times Um, so that's one of the big investments that are is hard, you know, to get up front. Um, but it's it sure is sure is fun to 
Yeah. I'm sure it's fun to play around with yeah, it a little bit. I don't think this area will ever... Uh, we work with Steve Miller at Cornell, and, I, you know, we've talked, I don't think this area will ever rival the Pacific Northwest or, or other hop-growing centers, but it could... I think it could be a viable for a number of farmers uh, making baled whole cone and hop pellets uh, at some point, and that's what we are trying to assist that that transformation. It's awesome that you guys are in a position to yeah help facilitate that. Yeah. Right. Can I throw can I throw something sure, in? Because you know, upstate has a rich agricultural tradition. Everything from truck farms to dairy, you name it. But right now, about the only thing that exists is dairy farming. And dairy farming is, you know, dairy is a commodity. So what upstate farmers have done is they've started to learn to do things like make cheese. And they're making cheese and making more valuable product. Most of these people have a lot of land. So if we can encourage them to do this and move into growing hops, it's another way they keep the land free of industrial development. It's another way they hold on to it. It's another way they pass it on. So all of this stuff all fits together. <laughs> no, very nice. So, Larry, so you guys at Omegang, though, you really have an important role because as, as breweries, breweries have a high profile. Mm-hmm. You know, you're accessing capital and things that a typical farmer doesn't. Mm-hmm. But you're also able, you are able to make statements about what you think is the best use for, for land around here. Sure, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, there, are, there are many people interested in this, many people interested in the potential of growing hops. Mm-hmm. And as, 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 as Jeff noted, this used to be the hops growing capital of the country. So, so uh, you know... As Phil said, I don't know if it'll ever come back to that, but there's no reason it can't be a, yeah, a big piece of scale. But say, you know, agriculture. I mean, I won't totally stop buying hops from Pete over there. <laughs> but, you know, it'd be neat if they can supply a percentage, you know, mm-hmm. of, the, of locally grown hops. Mm-hmm. So, Omega, you guys you know, are a very important New York State brewery. Where do you guys buy? You buy hops, you buy malt. What are the places that you buy it from? Uh, I, a lot of my hops I get through Duval. They... They're probably the largest contractor of uh, Slovenian steering goldings, and we use a lot of steering goldings. And Hedwig Nevin gives me a good price, so uh, I usually buy my hops through him, uh, th- those hops. But we get some from uh, Hop Union, Pete Velez over there, Hop Steiner. Uh, you know, so we got hops from Slovenia, Germany, Pacific Northwest, New Zealand, we've used, Australia. One thing I wanted to ask you, I, I feel like that Omegang has this house style that's, that's beautiful. I think a lot of breweries do. And I noticed even last year you made this great uh, barrier relief beer. There was a, the beer from Long Island Barrier. Mm-hmm. You helped them out. It, it, even though it, it, it still tastes like an Omegang beer. So what is it yeah, about? What it makes the, the Omegang house style? The yeast. Just the yeast. The yeast. The water. Predominantly. Water. Yeah. And water. In the water. Water too, but I mean, yeah, the water's soft. Have, so have, so it's predominantly the, what's driving that flavor is the yeast. And now there's a hoppy beer too, so they're hop bill, you know. But is that like a proprietary yeast, or like for the home brewers, can can they just make get an Omegang yeast? Um, yeah, they could get it from our bottle. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I don't think Not White Labs carries uh, the Omegang yeast per se. Yeah, I've propagated from a bottle. Yeah, yeah that's what a lot of home brewers do. Yeah. Character, but like for our listeners, like how does that start? I mean, so Omegang's been around for a while. Is it the same yeast that you started with, or when you came in, you improved it? No, uh, it came originally from Belgium, from a brewery in Belgium, and then uh, White Labs maintains our mother culture, and then every five weeks they send us a two-gallon slurry that we propagate up in the yeast, uh, up in the brewery. The yeast was chosen very early on, correct? Like yeah, even well, before Andy? The original, the original yeast, they had some big issues. They had a very powdery yeast, and uh, they couldn't filter it. Um, so they went through a couple of... Uh, different strains, and finally Hedwig Nevin brought over this one strain, uh, and that's 
as far as I know, I mean, we've been using it since yeah, I've been yeah. here since 2007. And um, have you ever had a fermentation that wasn't primarily that yeast? In a, um, on a production scale? Or? Yeah, we, yeah, we, I mean, the, the beer de Hougamont, we used the French shale, you know, uh, beer de Garde strain, uh, the Britannomyces. Knowing some of your brewers, I've even tasted some pilot beers that yeah. were, you know, clean IPAs made with the same yeast. Yeah. That they just treated differently in the, yeah, in the yeah, process. Yeah. yeah. And you use the same yeast for bottling, which means that we're getting the same flavor. Like some. Some places will use a different yeast yeah, in bottling. Yeah, different strain or like a dried So you yeast can't really get anything from that, but yeah, you use the yeah. same one, so it keeps yeah. it. Yep. Hey, this guy's from Hop Union, so introduce yourself. Because you're a big part of, of all the beer that's getting made around here. I'd like to think so, yeah. Um, I'm Pete Velez from, uh, I cover the East Coast for Hop Union. Um, so what do you guys do? We are, we're a grower-owned uh, processor and dealer of hops. Um... So we're owned by a handful of growers, six primary owners, uh, all from the Pacific Northwest. And uh, the, the uh, upstate New York farmers have reached out to them, um, you know, in the last few years as they kind of get their feet wet in this. And so my, my boss actually asked me this summer to check out some of the farms. So that's, I, I roped that into this trip up here. I visited three farms on the way up. So uh, it's really exciting. I mean, I'm from, I'm from upstate New York, central New York so area. The, the farmers so. are in the, in this region? Uh-huh. What, what, what there's one, there's one that's uh, in uh, Mumsville. It's about, what, 30 minutes from here. Um, he has about six acres, you know, yields on a good year, about four, four and a half thousand pounds. Um, the guy that Jeff was talking about is still in the hop game. Apparently, he is the biggest New York farmer. Um, he's that, probably got twenty-ish. No, no, I think he's total uh, that he could do. That right? he could do, yeah. I think he's. I think he's got ten or twelve planted. So what? Isn't there something like last year when we were at the the Omegang Fest? We went to the farm museum in Cooperstown, and they had a little uh, expo by the, the the Small Hop Farmers Alliance. Or it was, I think that's a Cornell initiative, right? You know what that Neha's is? Well, there's, there's, there's Northeast Hop Alliance, yeah. and then the Cornell Extension. Um, they're independent, but they work together. So they gave a little talk at, at the farm museum about how small farmers in this area could could start growing hops, and, and they said they're around half acre. Um, beyond half acre, they needed to, to, to buy a hop harvesting machine. Um, I don't understand that, but but tell us how that works, because well, the the technology and the infrastructure out west that's been developed for hop farming is like generations old, but it's all still like. I mean, handmade kind of stuff. And uh, they've just been using it forever. So, I mean, there's pickers out there that you'll never see anywhere else in the world. Um, and you need the machine. You can't just put the hops up and no, because it, like No, because in order to make money on it, you know, you, you, you have to... It, it, it's, it's like beer, you know? I mean, you, you need to produce a lot of beer to make some money. With hops, unfortunately, you have to produce a whole lot of hops before you make any money, and then it's very labor-intensive. Even with technology, the you know the, the town of Yakima swells by about thirty thousand people during 30 days. for thirty days during hop harvest season, and that's it um, because it is still very manual. And the infrastructure that exists out there is kind of mind-blowing. And then it could translate here, but you know. That infrastructure takes a long time. Are to there build. really just a machine that can knock it all out, or do you still need all these people to help? There, there is uh, a company called Wolf, a German company, that they make uh, a picker. They make a mobile one and a stationary one. Um, but picking the um, the hops off the vine is one thing. You have to get it out of the field first, and finding an efficient way to pick, you know, five, ten, fifteen acres 
in an appropriate time so that, you know, you don't start when they're young and finish when they're overripe. You know, because there, there is a very, like, hops mature within a three-week period. They go from looking like and smelling like not very much to these beautiful citrusy bombs in three weeks. And so you got to be on it when you pick it. So it's a matter of picking the fields efficiently. So and you're, you're telling us there's little chance that we're going to go back to the days when people walked around in stilts and picked tops? <laughs> and they don't may, 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 maybe for a show, but... On, on the vine, they don't all mature at the same rate, so do you do you just, like, when I mean, well, you get the you, most you, of them, you, you take you, them out? You try to, try to gauge that by putting your field in the right place, making sure the field gets the, right amount, the same amount of sunlight. Right. Um, you know, your trellis style, you know, affects that as well. So, I mean, like, you try to have it mature, you know, the same time on the vine, right. but you're going to have one field mature differently than another right yeah within a farm or a co-op they will schedule they'll have a rotation of an early medium late crop to maximize that window to keep that window of production there, there open. Are some farmers that don't even grow certain varieties because they mature at the same time as their mm -hmm. core varieties so jeff have you been in a lot of hop harvests i have i have and it's one of my favorite trips of the year yakima is a, a wonderful place um and but you see even even the uh harvesting from the field to the to the picking facility still done at most places fairly low tech yeah. it's a pickup truck with a plywood box built on the back guys riding on the top with machetes cutting the top cutting the bottom and laying them in the truck running them you know the, the maybe mile so or they're two really, they're not harvesting the field they're just kind of gathering they cut the vine down well we're not as close to the hop yard as we were before but uh they they drive down the rows with a pickup truck and they cut the whole Bind down at the top and bottom, and then take that string into the harvester that's back at, you know, the, the So that's where the, the machine, ranch. it's not like this machine's going through the field. It's like no, it's a farm it's typically a has yeah. one machine that they run 24-7 for 30 days, uh, with trucks coming, rotating through the, the entire time. It's really something, it's really something else to see. But like you said, it's very low tech. It's like a combination of brute force and gravity that sort the hops. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, and some farms have very like high tech equipment, and some farms have, boy, a, like a hundred Walmart box fans zip tied to a uh, hundred year old leather uh, conveyor belt. And I, I know you've been to, to a lot of this stuff too, Phil. We're gonna have to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. We're here at Home Games Belgium comes to Cooperstown. All right, rock on. This one's called Cheaters by Pamela Royal. Stay tuned for more from Beer Sessions Radio. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're up here in Cooperstown at the Omen Gang Belgian Comes to Cooperstown Fest. We're sitting with a homebrew club and some professional brewers and the guys from Omen Gang. We're having a great talk about things like clean water and hops. And here's a gentleman, he's a president of one of the local homebrew clubs that's here today. One of the heart and souls of the festival. We've met so many great people, brewers, enthusiasts, industry people, and uh, guys from Fishburg, Massachusetts. So introduce yourself. Uh, Scott Buchanan, I'm the president of FOAM. Um, 
been a broom for for about 12 years now and uh you know this is great just to i love this festival i've been coming for about five or six years now and and it's just a great collaboration with camping right next to brewers and being able to talk about brewing and learning stuff and and passing on knowledge it's, it's just a great um great festival for for learning about See, we're here. sitting here under three tents these guys have set up it feels like paradise here it's a uh, we're amazing it's in the beautiful you know cooperstown area um i know you had a question for, for phil linehart from omegang we were talking about hops yeah they're growing some hops here and and trying to rebuild the uh the hops that used to be a, a, a good uh uh, viable industry here in, in New York, and I've I've always uh, thought about wine and terroir and how it's starting to come into beer. And you guys were talking a little bit about trying to make consistent beers the same year after year. But I think as a home brewer, I I don't brew the same thing all the time, and I like that when when uh, breweries do knockoffs, one-offs, and and how the same style of beer with different stuff, different ingredients, um, year after year, how it changes. Um, and I think terroir and hops is, is, is an interesting uh, concept. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm no hop agronomist, but I think, you know, sun inclination and soil, we see it here, can affect, you know, acid and hop uh, oil development. Like, we, we have a, a plot up the hill and then a plot uh, close to the road, and there are two different soil types. And on the hill, the, I mean, I don't know how they're going to come out, you know, aroma and bitterness-wise, but just the the growth rate that was the difference we're seeing is huge. Um, so, yeah, I think With there is some effect. Identical, otherwise right. identical yeah. uh, timing and varieties. And yeah. Treatment. yeah. So, uh, how, for you guys, Jeff O'Neill from Pisco and and Philip from Omi. I mean, how are those differences? You know, it's one grows more than the other. Does that affect taste? Uh, not I'm not sure necessarily. I mean, no. But I think, you know, soil types, you know, rainfall, sun inclination, all that can probably affect acid and oil development to some extent. I don't know. Like I say, I'm no hop agronomist, but... Um, I know you can get people. Cascade from, from New Zealand and Cascade from, from out west, and they're completely different characters. Yeah, yeah. So it makes sense. Oh, Cascade different. from farm to farm yeah. can be completely, yeah. completely so different. So there's got to be... Any no. variety from, from, not even from farm to farm, but... Year to year, it changes. Uh, yeah. Square mile to square mile, maybe. Yeah, so that is, that's kind of like as far as it's, it's there's there's yeah. different locations, there's different seasons, and things can. Different farmers, I mean, how they I, I not a, not only as a brewer, but as a as as a buyer of beer, wouldn't mind seeing some more of that. Not always having to make the consistent product of you know this flavor has got to be the same every time, which is sort of you know where where we were before the the craft brewing revolution and having those you know emphasizing some of that is it could be easily uh, capitalized upon yeah well that's what you can do with limited yeah. release yeah, i mean my goal will always yeah. be with our core beers to be consistent i mean because that takes the utmost oh, yeah. skill of and, course and and knowledge and but i mean that's why, why you do limited release beers so you can let's well, jeff like we, earlier on our break we were talking about you guys talking about you've been to a certain hop harvest and you've went in and picked you know certain crops and tell us about that process if you're getting that hands on so if you on. get there at the right time of year you're able to um, sample several different locations and uh, samples of the same variety of hop and there's night and day differences sometimes um, and sort of in the same context that uh, you know every IPA or pale ale out there is a little bit different they're all within the same kind of range but you know uh, Say, for instance, a centennial-grown 
um, on one side of it, or even the same ranch might taste or smell, uh, express itself differently than, than one grown or harvested a few days earlier or later. When you talk about certain hops, like, like I know that Phil, you guys made a new beer with Bravo hops, and you're talking about Centennial. As a brewer, like, you know, like I know as a chef, I can think of certain ingredients and I kind of know what they're going to taste like and I trust them. Do you always trust that the hop's going to taste the way you think it is, or is it, is it different from batch to batch? Well, like Jeff said, you can do you can rub through the rub. So yeah. varietally, I mean, you're not going to get, unless the hop is poor quality or something like that, you're not going to get something way out here. Yeah, I think even like an experienced home brewer has a, probably a good context of what to expect out of a certain time or a certain quantity addition based on the <laughs> relatively straightforward math of it. Um, but like I say, the, the same varieties can express themselves very differently depending on timing, place and time. The yeah, time of harvest is a big one. So like, there's one series that, that I buy a lot. You know, Sierra Nevada has they have a northern hemisphere fresh hop and a southern hemisphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, are they actually just, is that totally different hops? Or oh, sure. That's, yeah, that's what it is. Necessarily, yeah. Um, they do those opposite times of year, the southern hemisphere. Uh, and I think, I'm not sure that they, they've been uh, primarily South American. I know they did one that was South American, one that was maybe uh, Australian. I, I, or, I thought or, that they were usually New Zealand because okay. that's where it started. Yeah, yeah. But I think that they they have done. I don't. Know, I remember Sierra seeing like a uh, no, Cascade, I, I South do, American I do Cascade think that, Yeah, I think um, they have used some from. But they are the original. They are the original innovators at, at this particular thing with fresh hopping, and uh, their estate grown beer is one of the best beers I've ever had. They're uh, fully estate grown. Um, malt and uh, hop, hop beers. One of the best pale ales I've ever had. Larry, before you guys had also an interesting conversation going on about hops and, and things like that, well, I, no, I actually, Well, no, I was actually just curious about Jeff going out and just seeing how they how they do this because he said, um, where are you going out there? To Yakima? To Yakima, to the Yakima Valley. Yeah. And he said 30,000 people show up for 30 days, something like well, that. That, that, that? That was just, that, I said that. that. That was more of just like, with all, you know, yeah, there's a lot of migrant work, workers, workers that pick, that, come in. that pick the hops. So that that's what swells the, uh, oh, yeah, you, even I think within the local economy, they've got apples and grapes well, that's and they keep the same, like, hops they keep the same, yeah. Hops are picked first, then apples yeah. and then whatever else. That's so, interesting. Like up here, like back in the 1800s, they had, uh, down here they call it a hop city and it's just like because they're the same thing like a lot of migrant workers used to come into the area and from New York City and stuff like that well, people just like a shanty town yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah well people would actually come up here for vacations and spend a couple weeks picking hops hanging up and you know they a couple just, weeks working there yeah. their <laughs> but, but they were out of the city and they were in fresh air yeah you know, you know they, their tuberculosis <laughs> right. yeah. and they, they would have a party at the end of this two weeks and you know what they called that of course yes what the hop Mm. Nice. That's where the hop comes from. I actually just learned that the other day. <laughs> so this is this is true. Larry's not making this I'm not up. Making no, it up. He's not making this I'm up. I'm making it up. You're a good storyteller, Larry. But I'm just it's true. 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 It's but also that the other ingredients grown here, uh, you know, can make a difference in, in quality of our life, whether it's food or, or beer or something. Well, um, yeah, well, I, th- I mean, I think there's a whole, and this has been going on for years, there's a whole local food and drink movement around the country, you know, and it's, it's come up here now, and we just want to see it succeed. 
not just because we love good local food and drink, but because it's great for the economy. It keeps people on their farms, keeps families here, it brings visitors here. I mean, it's a totally win-win-win-win situation for everyone. The other day I, I read the new Ale Street News, and there was a brief article that said uh, uh, NRDC, which is a serious right. environmental right. group, they have a new program called Brewers for Clean Water, right. and uh, they're they're pushing the president. And I think that does that's more than just clean water. It's also about anti-fracking. Right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. So, and we, we read that some of the brewers in Colorado, where they do have fracking, are concerned about the quality of their water. Oh, absolutely. And Colorado has di- even different laws than here. You know, they, they have a lot of problems there with people owning mineral rights to what's beneath their land. So they have an even more complicated problem than we have here. So. Yeah, so when, you know, when we come up to Cooperstown for the festival here, we see the, the first the, the quality and character of the festival with homebrew groups and enthusiasts and brewers and everybody else. But also driving around here, uh, we're seeing signs, you know, don't frack. And, uh, you know, the, this is a very special area that you guys have seemed to preserve some historical qualities. And yet you're under at risk of... of these large, you know, yeah. Well, Cooperstown. I mean, forces. Cooperstown goes all the way back to James Fenimore Cooper, who originated it, and he was one of the original people who was interested in environmental protection. And he for he saw saving this area. I mean, if you were a Native American, you probably didn't feel this way about him. <laughs> no, but he saw preserving the beauty and character of this area. And we're talking two hundred and fifty years ago. So talk, so there's a restaurant on the on the lake, Lake Otsego. It's called uh, the Blue Mingo. Right. And what what is that? That's an Indian. Uh, yeah, Mingo. Yeah, it was one of the Indians in his books. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I guess the blue comes from us being beside the lake. So, well, it's a beautiful lake. If you've never been here, I, I recommend coming up to Cooperstown. We come up every year. It's a deep lake. It's a you know Adirondack foothills. Um, it's it's cold right now. It's it's a lot cooler than if you're in any of the cities like New York or Philly. It's it's definitely a great vacation. We've been really really privileged to have these great brewers here, Phil Leinhart and uh, Jeff O'Neill, and. Uh, Phil, you want to say anything else? Because I know right now the the great the grand tasting is going on inside. Yeah, I'm ready to go try some beer. Yeah, you got seventy five. <laughs> but that's one thing. One more thing that's really cool about this is that you guys are you know your your own gang and you've got these great Belgian breweries. But you have uh, over sixty breweries here, and and many of them are from New York State. Yeah. So uh, tell us how you go about about booking those breweries because it's amazing. Well, I know like, five away from New York is like this tiny breweries here. Yeah, like like Simon said before, we get a lot of people want to get in, but it's just a process of. Uh, you know, picking the ones you know that we want to want to have here, and we always have Jeff here every year. He pays us under the table. Well, so we have a great, uh, <laughs> and it's just a great, yeah. We have a great com- local community of, yeah. of, yeah. of, of yeah. brewers who yeah. uh, really bring their A games to this particular day. And there's something like what 140 breweries in New York State now, close to that. Yeah. yeah. So like I see some of the ones here today. I, I haven't heard of them before. So I gotta go test them. Try the beers. Try yeah. Beer. yeah. All right. Well, Jeff, let's talk a little bit more about water and hops because, you know, people really respect your brewing process, too. I don't know if you guys have to go. Phil and Larry, uh, you can... Yeah. Maybe there's a PR people here. Everybody's trying to get them. You know, they're important people here at this event. And uh, we're going to wrap up our session. But, you know, Jeff, we get get to hang out a lot, and and we've seen your beers only in, what, two years now, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in the sort of the right place at the right time to do... Sort of a uh, very premium draft product offering to the to the city and to our backyard in the Lower Hudson Valley. We have a really nice uh, custom built brewery um, that's able to be fairly versatile and you know really starting to refine what we're able to do. I mean, so area. in your case, like you know, people already knew you as a brewer. 
and uh, you were at Ithaca, and I know that you, you came down to Pisco and they, and they, they expanded and, and, and yeah, did a little a, more. Built a whole new brewery a block but away. In your case, would you say that the brewery is, is the integral part of a brewery and of the taste of a beer? The brewery? The brewer, the, like uh, you. I'm trying to give you some credit, but... No, I mean, it's a combination of so many different things. I mean, it's your site and your ingredient selection right. and, you know, your water and the geometry of your tanks and your, you know... I said this on your show the other day. I feel like the the sort of uh, way of life of the small craft brewer is to uh, accentuate the strengths of their brewery and downplay the weaknesses because we've all compromised on something, some piece of used equipment or some uh, something that didn't work out as well as we planned, and you sort of, uh, you know, that's sort of uh, where some of the really distinctive, I think, modern American craft beers have come from, really. Uh, but you know, you, the equipment is important, right? Like, I mean, the, sure, certain, certain mean, things ferment a certain way. Having control over the process uh, is the most important thing, and in our new brewery, I have... Uh, you know, finite temperature control that I've never had over fermentations before. And uh, just really, I mean, beyond that, free reign to do uh, to do what we want to do. And luckily I have, uh, you know, a lot of great relationships with um, suppliers, hop farmers, and and, uh, and others that, uh, other brewers who we've been bringing in. Like, we've done a few collaborations now, and uh, sort of treating it, I make this joke every time somebody comes and visits the brewery, but... Um, we just made an imperial stout with my friend uh, Bob Burrar from Iron Hill. Bob has won um, GABF medals for dark beers uh, at 11 consecutive GABFs. Um, so we brought him in to make a stout with us, and he's the, the most important ingredient. So, like, we sort of treat the uh, the whole process and all of the inputs as uh, equally important to each other. That's it's a holistic approach, I think. To make to make to make a good beer, you have to consider a lot of things. And and you do a lot of collaborations, don't you? So I mean, so far, I think for the first six or seven months, um, we, we've we've done three and uh, brought some great friends down. We did a a wit beer. Um, uh, we have a cool ship in our brewery, and uh, a friend of mine named Megan Parisi is opening a brewery in uh, Washington D.C. called Blue Jacket, and we're both good friends with. Uh, the great people at Allagash, and uh, they have a cool ship, and they ma- and uh, they make the probably the uh, apologies to Phil and Larry and our and our hosts, but probably the uh, definitive uh, uh, Belgian style white um, today. Uh, so we're lucky enough to be able to entice them to come and share some of their insights on particular brewing techniques that are you know a big part of it. It's it's a it's a big it, it, every beer is different and has its own <coughs> things that work and don't. If that makes sense. Cheers, man. And uh, these guys, the home group foam here. <clears throat> you guys want to ask Jeff any special techniques or secrets of brewing? <coughs> uh, no, My I, voice I, went. You know what? I, I like what you were saying about the whole time <coughs> because the, the whole time you guys were talking, it you, you always hear like the, the malt people are like, well, we're the most important ingredient. The water is the most important. The hops are the most important. The yeast. It's the most important, but the holistic, it, it really is, without one of them, you're all missing. Sure, you throw sure. the brewer in there, we could give you yeah, great equipment. I mean, equipment. there's, a lot, of, there's and, a lot of variables there, and like they say, uh, you know, you give a bunch of brewers the same recipe, and 
have them take the same ingredients to their breweries and the beers aren't going to be the same beers. We, we try that on a local level with homebrew clubs. Yeah. And <coughs> we'll have you know, a little competition where you get the exact same And again, it's everything. a pale ale. They're all pale ales. But you brew but them differently. When you style, consider them relative to each other, right. there can be a really broad, broad And that gets back to his question. It's like, are you important? But when we have we have the same, you know, we, here's the directions. Brew it this way. And we'll all come in with, you know, 12 yep. different oh. beers because... You bring something to that, the sure. way you do whatever. For better or worse. There's some beers where the technique gets in the way, I think, of, yeah. of the yeah. ingredients and, and vice versa. There's a lot of breweries that, are, that you'll change brewers and the beer changes. You know, you're, I mean, Absolutely. you know. Again, though, better or worse. And yes. there's a lot of yeah, breweries that, that uh, yeah. yes. you know, are growing and, like, it's a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge to... Uh, Let's go around. We'll wrap this up. So, you guys, say your name and, and what group you're with, because this is a really cool homebrew group from Massachusetts. Scott Buchanan, Fitchburg Order of Ale Makers. I'm the president of the club. All right, and this gentleman, the fancy hop guy, yeah. Pete Velez, Hop Union. <laughs> I'm Jeff O'Neill from the Peak Skill Brewery. Uh, I'm Joey Flernoy. I'm actually a double agent because I'm with Foam, but I also am the vice president of the Wizards out of Worcester. All right. Well, hey, and we're uh, Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network up here at Omegang. Great festival. We're going to go out and drink more beer and meet more people on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thing, 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 thing.